Hey guys, and welcome to the next episode of the Shane Walsh Fitness Podcast. So, thank you so much for everything over the last few months. It's It's been a little bit nuts. Uh, I am super, super excited for this episode. Um, so, this week's episode is with Shannon Beer. Uh, so, Shannon is probably one of the most knowledgeable people I've known or have had the pleasure to speak with in the industry. And Shannon is an MNU certified nutritionist like myself, and I, I've become a lot very friendly with a lot of people who have had that qualification because it is it is well represented it's well known and it's it's well recognized and stuff like that she made the switch from the legal profession to nutrition and we're going to talk about that we talk about she values kind of truth strength compassion uh humility and courage and and commitment and that's and that's a massive massive thing she's also the host of the shannon beer podcast and some of the guests she's had on are like it's early for her but she's had very very good guests on she's also working very closely with a former guest which is uh gabrielle uh, dr gabrielle fundaro uh who is a good health expert so do go head over and after you listen to this episode go and head over to, to that as well but the kind of what the the main reason we kind of want to talk about this episode in particular is it talks about what health means to her it talks about how we can get motivation wrong the tips to help with emotional eating whether we need to track calories what is the gray area we talk about intuitive eating we talk, uh, talk about the importance of actually managing expectations planning for failures why do we care how we look and the importance of that kind of how we talk to ourselves as well and tips for removing shame around food and guilt around food so it's, it's a really really in-depth episode it's really really an incredible episode and i think it's definitely going to help a lot of people um and it's one of those episodes i think we've all wherever we are on our journey there's some sort of some part of this that one one of us will latch on to uh, and that's why I'm, I'm so grateful for shannon giving us over time so I hope you guys enjoy the episode um, and without further ado, I'm going to let Shannon do most of the talking. So I hope you guys enjoy the episode. Thank you so much for coming on, Shannon. How are you? I'm good. Doing very well. How are you? I'm very good. So Shannon, I gave a brief intro to the listeners before we came on. And one of the things that definitely struck a chord with myself, and I think it's definitely striking a chord with a lot of people at the minute is kind of potentially changing careers and you made the the big switch from a the legal profession to kind of going into the nutrition field what made you kind of go down that route what were kind of the hurdles that were kind of either in your head or the financial stuff and would you have any what advice would you have for people kind of looking to do the same so my best uh i think it's difficult for me to give advice on this just because um, I understand that people have different obligations and different commitments, but for me, it was always about doing something that I was most interested in. And when I was studying law, I realized that I was just doing it for the sake of it <laughs> because I could, like, why not kind of thing. And I didn't really have any intentions of pursuing it any further. I also remember having a tutor who said during one of his lectures, if you're not reading up about this sort of stuff in your spare time out of interest, then you're in the wrong place. And I thought, damn, <laughs> I'm in the wrong place. And I thought, what was I interested in? What was I reading up about? And that was always nutrition. So it became clear to me pretty soon into my degree that I didn't want to um, take that any further. So after I gave myself a period of time to try and figure out what I was most interested in, and that's when I started studying with MNU. Um, the course was online, so I also took the opportunity to go traveling, and then it kind of started there, and I just guess I've never stopped traveling <laughs> since then, and I've been um, coaching people along the way. So yeah, my big piece of advice, because I have a lot of friends at the moment who've realized with the current situation, I think a lot of people are just kind of reflecting on their life at the moment, and they're, they're aware that they're stuck in a job that they don't like. For example, one of my friends is a lawyer and she hates the lifestyle. You know, she's been working from home and now she's like, I don't want to go back to the office. Why have I been spending half of my life commuting? You know, all of these considerations. She's like, I just want to do yoga. I want time for these things that I enjoy. Why am I just living to work? So if you've got the you know, financial stability, um, you don't have as many obligations like I don't have kids you know there's, there's those things to consider as well um, but I 
really would encourage people to just think about what they enjoy doing I I'm always of the opinion might be naive might be because I'm young but I always think that you can make money doing anything (laughs) so just pick the thing that you want to do um and go from there because you probably need less than what you think and if you've again thought that the career that you're in is not the choice for you then I think the the first thing is just to start considering other options and go from there I think the what your 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 kind of mentor or whatever it was uh kind of said about kind of like if you're researching it outside of it then it's kind of like it's an interest I think a lot of people have interest in other things but they are just ultimately scared to make the jump it is scary like don't get me wrong but it's also it's if, if you really want to do something like I know I've been very fortunate to have people on who have moved careers a lot of them have gone down the yoga field as you've spoken about because that's what they enjoy doing and if they can even get five people into a class at the beginning and it doesn't have to be the really high ticket item you can do it part-time if you want Mm -hmm. and then try it out and especially now like there's very low barrier into entry for that kind of stuff you can do it via zoom Mm -hmm. you get your mate to promote it for you if you want and there's instagram and stuff like that for that as well um the the met that we've got so much to go through and I'm I'm very conscious of your time as well. Um but one of the big things that kind of comes up an awful lot and I remember this on M and U about kind of like what does health mean to you? It was one of those big topics that kind of came up as well. And it was asked to me recently by someone else's podcast. And it was a really, really thought provoking conversation. So I'm gonna I'm gonna let you kind of go into it as well and kind of give your thoughts on it. Yeah, this is something that I've thought about a fair bit because often when someone comes to work with me, like they may have some physique goals, but alongside that, they usually say, you know, and I also just want to be healthy. I want to improve my health. And I thought, well, if I'm going to be able to help someone improve their health, then I need to have an understanding of what health means. And I think our typical approach to health is just thinking about health in terms of physical health. How can I improve this person's physical health through their nutrition and training program? Whereas I think although physical health is important, just thinking about health in terms of that is a little bit myopic. And in my view, I really like the idea of flourishing health, which is something that I came across in a paper by Vanderville. I think he has a couple like on the promotion of human flourishing. Um, one's 2017, one's 2019. So you probably find it just by Googling those things. But his idea of health expands far beyond the physical domain. So that takes into consideration someone's um, psychological well-being social health as well um intellectual health like semiotic health your sense of like meaning and purpose um all of these things come together to create I consider health as like an emergent property of someone's way of living so it's not something that you can kind of get just by focusing on all these little things it's when they come together as a whole that's how you can lead um, like a lifestyle that allows you to flourish I also think that everyone has their own definition of health so we can note some like common factors you know you could use like metabolic markers of health to measure physical health you could measure um, things like that but at the end of the day everyone's idea of health is going to look a little bit different to them you know when you're considering social health well how many people and what kinds of relationships satisfy an individual because that's almost in a certain sense comes down to perception like your perceived level of um, connectedness rather than say a a certain number of people that makes someone not lonely because they've got five friends so they can't be lonely you know it's it's more about a perception um and that how you would like to form those connections what does that involve that could be in a gym setting you know some of these um like uh sporting environments can be social environments too or that might look like going out and eating a meal out with your friends you know there's different ways to form those connections and to maintain those relationships so at the end of the day I think that health is something that although we can identify these kind of common areas that we would want someone to feel fulfilled with um, what that's actually going to look like and how someone's going to live their life is very individual and for those that kind of 
only use metrics and measurements and scales as a metric for their health have you got any advice like there's nothing wrong with using those metrics particularly if you are severely overweight but have you got any advice to kind of potentially move away from those markers for those that potentially aren't overly overweight and then can be bogged down by and that their mood kind of be impacted by scales or measurements Mm, like those measurements certainly have their place but I think when we use them we have to be very intentional with that so for someone who has say has reached their sort of or have has made progress and improved their health in a way and they are looking to maintain their results like what does that scale weight mean to you it's very easy to fall into the trap of associating your self-worth with a number on the scale or having a certain number in your head. Like, I could only be happy if I weigh this number. That's when my life is good. That's when it can become quite problematic. So I like to encourage people to think about other things in addition to the scale weight or to consider moving away from using scale weight at all you know how are your clothes fitting how do you want to feel day to day do you want to feel like you're constantly thinking about your body weight you know if you um step on the scale and it's higher than what you expected how does that affect your mood for the day thinking about these things i think can help bring awareness to how that number can influence someone's mood because some people are absolutely fine don't really take any notice of it don't really care cool then it's not a problem other people again fall into that trap of letting that number dictate their mood that's when perhaps it's a good time to move away because it it might not be serving a purpose for you again if the goal is to maintain that's maintaining a lifestyle it's not maintaining a number on the scale because that changes all the time um so i think bringing awareness to how that number can affect someone's mood helps them to realize that oh perhaps this isn't that useful for me and perhaps it's not serving any function and I think a lot of people rely on the scale to keep themselves in check that's something that I've heard clients say it's like well I need to know so I can watch out in case I start gaining weight it's like well how about we look at other ways to keep yourself in check such as like paying attention to your hunger and fullness signals you know if you're eating to satisfaction and you're eating mindfully and not getting to that point where you're super full the majority of the time and you're training in a way that you enjoy you're moving your body how likely is it that you're going to let yourself go you know thinking about the kind of lifestyle habits that they've built up over time and emphasizing those because those are the things that you can control you know you can decide what you may like to eat you can decide to go to the gym but you can't wake up one morning and say I want to weigh this number go <laughs> and then you know change the number on the scale it doesn't work like that so um, I think bringing that attention back to how you actually want to feel each day um, is a really useful way to move away from the scale weight. I really like that idea of like almost controlling the controllables. You can control what you do on a daily basis. You control how much vegetables and fruit and protein and stuff like that you eat on a daily basis, but you can't wake up and say, tell the scales, I want to weigh 70 kilos or whatever it may be. So why try to kind of let your mood, let, let your lifestyle be impacted by that? Why don't you control your own lifestyle and say, I'm going to look after myself by doing these small little steps, even get out for a walk, even bring the kids out for a walk or whatever it may be. So I think that's a massive, massive point. And I hope someone latches onto that because that that has definitely been a, a game changer for a lot of the clients as soon as they get away from, from the scales. And I think as soon as you stop to measure your self-worth by a piece of plastic or a piece of metal on the floor, it, it, your life can become a little bit or a lot more um, enlightening and you, you kind of take the pressure away from yourself. The The word motivation gets thrown around an awful lot, especially in fitness. And, and it's one of these buzzwords that if I had hair, I would have pulled it out by now, but I hit the amount of times that I hear, especially with, with uh, people or if you're out having a conversation with someone, they talk about how you stay so motivated. Why do you think so many people latch on to that word? And how can we, how do people get motivation wrong? Yeah, I think we have used this word a lot without really stopping to consider what it actually means. And um, clients use it as well. You know, I don't feel motivated this week, but coaches also use it. And we tend to equate motivation with the will to do something. 
And when someone is unmotivated, it's very easy to fall into the trap of saying, well, they just don't want it bad enough. But motivation is way more than that. And the way that it's been defined is as all of the brain processes that energize behavior. So some of these are conscious and some of these are unconscious. So it's not necessarily a case of wanting to do something or not wanting to do something. It's about realizing that at any given moment, we are under multiple influences um, and we are kind of balancing competing urges and drive to do something. So I may have a goal to lose weight. Like I, that's something that I really want. I'm not always going to feel like doing the actions that will lead to that result. For example, if I've had a long day at work and I get home, um, I might feel tired. I'm not really wanting to go to the gym. I'm motivated right now to actually just sit on my couch and not do anything because those are physiological drives that are making me want to just sit down and not move. Um, that's a motivation. If we're thinking about motivation in terms of all of the brain processes that energize behavior, that includes psychological and physiological aspects. Um, so I may want to lose weight. I'm motivated to lose weight, but in this moment right now, I'm actually motivated to sit on the couch. Um, so I think understanding that, that it's actually a part of being human because you, you are exposed to multiple influences and you have all these drives that we're trying to balance, um, including like habits, um, our perceptions, our emotional states, our level of arousal, um, our um, like ideas and just like the frame of mind that we're in. Those things are all important when considering motivation. So I think just having that understanding will help because then it helps us to advise someone who is feeling demotivated something that I remind my clients is that if you have the will to change like if that's still something you want then that's all you all the motivation you need we now actually should probably just focus on reducing the friction that you're currently experiencing and that could be done in a number of ways depending on what the kind of barrier is at that moment and that's been really useful for my clients to realize that, oh, hang on a minute, it's normal not to feel like doing all the things that you want to do, like or the, all the things that you think you should do all the time. That is normal and that's bound to happen. Um, you can also think of motivation in terms of like the um, self-determination theory. So you've got like different kinds of motivation. And that theory has its limitations, but it's also useful to identify between internal and external forms of motivation. So again, if you're wanting to change because you think that um, it's, you know, other people are going to reward you for looking a certain way, that's not really a strong source of motivation because it's not really coming from within, or you may be trying to avoid a feeling. And again, that's not really, um, a, a great source of motivation, even though it is a common one. So what we want to help with is moving towards more intrinsic forms of motivation. So finding the things that are enjoyable. So eating um, a diet that is actually satisfying for someone and, and you know, satiating something that they enjoy. Um, it doesn't have to be miserable. But also thinking about more integrated forms of motivation, again, for those types of or for those moments where okay I don't actually find this particular thing enjoyable again I don't want to train right now so maybe if I can tie that to say my sense of self my identity as a person my values that's going to be a stronger form of motivation than some kind of escape goal trying to avoid a certain feeling or to get some external sense of like approval and the way that we can do that I think this is where I find um, acceptance and commitment therapy techniques very useful is to think about why is this change important to you? You know, So why is weight loss important? Sure, you may want to um, lose weight to feel more confident. That's fine. But why else do you think this change is important to you? What does it actually mean to be healthy? And um, with this, people may say, oh, OK, well, I... I know that if I had a bit more energy day to day, I actually think I'd be a better partner in my relationship. Also, um, your relationships are something that you value. You know, being a loving partner or a strong and supportive partner may be something that this person values. And we can use that to form stronger forms of motivation. Uh, interestingly, 
when we're trying to make a decision from the, the neuroeconomical perspective of like decision making, this ties into the prime theory of motivation as well. So thinking about all the competing drives that we're dealing with at any given moment, when it comes to making a decision, I'm kind of weighing up the benefits and the costs to doing certain things. So let's take the example of making a nutrient dense meal. I could also order a takeaway. So I'm, I'm maybe I'm weighing up these two things. I could also just not eat. I could also snack. You know, there's a number of things I could do at this moment. And I'm kind of weighing up the pros and cons of when I'm making this decision. So the the benefits of making a nutrient dense meal may be that, oh, okay, that's quite conducive to my weight loss goal. Um, the costs may be the time and the effort involved. The benefits of ordering takeaways are, oh, it's quick, it's easy, it may be pretty tasty. Um, the costs may be, oh, well, maybe that's not the, the most optimal choice when I'm considering my goals. So this, this kind of pros and cons approach, these, um, values are weighed up in a part of the brain called the um, ventromedial prefrontal cortex and that part of the brain shares a close neuroatomical relationship with the medial prefrontal cortex which is associated with our sense of identity and self so what we can do is increase the subjective value of a goal-oriented behavior by tying it to someone's sense of self. So the value involved in, oh, okay, this nutrient dense meal would be conducive to my weight loss goal. Well, how much do we care about someone's weight loss goal? You know, that's gonna determine the value of that choice. And we can increase that value by thinking, oh, okay, I am the type of person that really takes care of my health because that allows me to put more energy into these important aspects of my life. You know, I identify myself as a strong and supportive partner in this relationship. So all of a sudden, that value of creating that um, nutrient-dense meal suddenly increased. So we're now more likely to engage in that behavior. And you could say, well, that person's now more motivated, or we can consider it from the perspective of, oh, I've actually just reduced some of the friction to um, engaging in those behaviors. So it's about thinking about um, motivation in terms of all of those things. So considering the psychological, physiological um, aspects that go into a motivated state. I think when you mentioned the like it's okay to be human, you've brought in the human element because we're not all robots. Not everyone wants to be Johnny Sixpack or Mary Big Bum or whatever it may be or whatever it may be. Like you you do have to like fitness isn't for everyone. Fitness isn't everyone's life. And I think bringing in a human element and bringing that in towards you and saying, right, what is my priority now? What is my focus right now? Especially at the minute, your priority might now be trying to get the kids off to school and but what you could potentially tweak then is could i potentially walk the kids to the school and that could be your steps in before you go to work that could be your small little win each day and i think that has to be brought into it as well but i think bringing a human element into it is a huge huge thing and that kind of brings in kind of like you've you about kind of like the emotional eating because that is a that is a, a big human thing that a lot of people do struggle with potentially it's kind of maybe increased a little bit now during during kind of lockdown and covid and stuff like that but it has been going on for a long time and i know it, it kind of stems from potentially a, a lot of a lot of things and it's, it's, a, it's a huge grading of, uh, of it how first of all what is emotional eating and have you got any tips on kind of how to manage it a few little tips i know it's there's such a broad range and i know it's so different for everyone but if you have any tips to manage it at all yeah so Firstly, emotional eating is totally normal and it's common and it's not inherently bad. So we all do it to some extent. You know, we might celebrate a birthday with by going out for a meal. That could be considered emotional eating in a, in a sense because it's not always about negative emotions either. We use food to celebrate. Um, so emotional eating is only something that becomes problematic if it's something that a client has identified as being a problem for them in the sense that it's actually causing them more distress than the benefits that you get from engaging in emotional eating because of course the reason that we do it is often to escape from negative emotions and the food does offer relief in that moment but it's about considering um, whether that action is actually adaptive and helping someone in the long run so usually it'll be a case of oh, okay i i you know usually notice that when i'm stressed or i'm tired or um, i'm in a bad mood or i'm lonely then that's when i overeat and i don't feel good after so that may be a time where okay this is something that we would like to address and 
if you're using food as a way to regulate your emotions and it's the only way that someone knows to regulate their emotions that's when it can become um, quite detrimental to like physical and mental health because suppressing or avoiding emotions um, isn't the healthiest kind of way to do that and what we can work on is firstly just like acceptance of the negative emotions understanding that that is also a part of life you know like not every day is going to be a super happy day like understanding that there will be times when you're stressed because that's just again part of life so building someone's skill of distress tolerance um where they can learn to experience those emotions for what they are make room for them but not detach themselves to them too tightly so if you can be mindful and practice that acceptance of those emotions then you also give your space that choice to decide on how to act so you're not eating out of a compulsion to escape that uncomfortable feeling you can actively decide yeah you know what I actually do just want a bit of chocolate right now and that's okay or you may decide that maybe that's not what I need and I think asking yourself what do I really need right now is an important question for someone to consider because if they're lonely then food isn't really going to be the solution to that problem you know it makes us feel better temporarily in the moment but actually what you would really need is potentially to reach out to someone call a friend you know speak to your parents maybe it's been a while um if you're stressed like why are you stressed what is it that's going on is there any kind of problem solving that you could put in place to help with that um, and yeah, I think just thinking about other ways to meet your needs is really important so that food isn't the only option that you've got. It's just one thing that you may want to do. But you've also got all of these other things. It's about thinking about what do I really need? What's the problem? And what's going to be the best way to actually make me feel better in the long run? Why do some people kind of default into kind of leaning towards food rather than kind of actually, as you said, having a conversation with someone because it's one thing that I think a lot of people are missing out on is kind of human interaction if you're you're quite a social person and you've you've kind of like normally have like a busy busy weekend why do people kind of default back into that kind of uh, using food as kind of like not a crutch but you you, Mm -hmm. that kind of that kind of ideology I think food offers kind of immediate relief it's a convenient relief as well and I think it can be really difficult and challenging to actually consider what's causing you to feel a certain way you know it's far easier to want to avoid these feelings and to not really look at what's causing them Um, and it's that avoidance that I think leads people again to to eating and that's why I think it's really important to recognize that everyone feels that way at times so reaching out to other people like there's nothing to feel ashamed of or scared of and if you start opening yourself up you'll probably find that other people are like oh damn me too you know it's just like oh, okay we're all human here like I didn't realize <laughs> um so yeah I think just I I've always really big on being clear about that like when it comes to my clients that just creating those kind of open relationships where people feel comfortable to talk about things that are going on and you know what's important to them so that's probably it the the food is the easiest option it doesn't involve changing anything or considering the the root of the problem which can be quite confronting you know so just um it's also habitual So that's another thing. It's just about breaking those kind of routines and habits that people have in place that they may have built up over a long period of time. So considering um, how you're feeling and other options just may be something that someone's not really taken the time to do before. Like, oh, okay, I didn't actually really... Again, some people don't draw the connection between emotional states and their behaviours and how their thoughts may influence their behaviours. So I think kind of raising awareness of that, it's like, oh, I didn't realise that every time I eat, it's actually because I'm stressed about X, Y, Z. You know, usually people think, oh, I'm just weak around food. That's my problem. Oh, no, 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 no. Like, you're actually acting like a total normal human being but now that we spotted that connection that gives us something to work with um so i think that would probably be um a, a really important thing to consider yeah i think that like you you brought up the habitual part of it and i think that is a massive thing especially for those that have kind of made the shift from potentially from working from an office environment where potentially food wasn't readily available or potentially it was it depends what kind of environment you had but 
for now, people, the barriers have been blurred a little bit. There are no barriers. If they're working out of the kitchen, they're kind of like this food around them. Uh, they're kind of like they're looking at the kind of the presses and stuff like that when they're kind of meant to be working or, or whatever it may be. Have you got any tips and stuff like that? I know you've kind of spoken about listening to listen to your head and kind of pause and listen to kind of that side of stuff. Have you got any tips for those? Is there any little nuggets of gold or whatever like that? Potentially putting out a, fr- a bowl of fruit instead of having uh, kind of like the, the chocolate out on the on the on the desk or whatever it may be. Yeah, so there's definitely some situational modifications that you can put in place to help kind of make your environment more conducive to the way that you would like to be eating. Um, So that could be, as you say, like making it easier to access those quick and easy options that have more nutrients in. So putting out a bowl of fruit is a great option. Um, Also keeping the items that you don't want to be asked having to buy out of sight can really help. Um, so those, again, this, this is touched on um, the kind of unconscious impulses that we have. So simply seeing food increases like your want, to, your, your drive to eat that food, you know. So um, that could be a useful tactic. Also, reducing the variety of foods that you have on offer would be a big one. So a lot of people may have um, like crisps, biscuits, chocolate, like all of those things in the house at once. Whereas if you just had one option, you're um, less likely to be tempted and you're probably going to get bored of it a little bit quicker. Um, So those are some things, those some situational modifications that you can put in place, but often they are over relied on. Like, although they can have a big impact, I think if the extent of our advice stops there, then that doesn't always help because not everyone has full control over their environment. For example, if you're sharing a kitchen with your family who don't have similar goals to you or um, people that, again, you don't know, your friends or whatever, you can't tell them not to have certain foods in the house. You know, that's not really up to you. So then we want to look to those kind of internal changes that we can make. And that's why I like to distinguish between the external environment and the internal environment. Because again, although we can make changes, we can't always control everything. Whereas our internal environment is something that's going to be with us at every given moment. So if we can work on, again, strengthening those kind of, reasons to wanting to change and I think that's where the mindfulness really comes in because as we touched on these habits and impulses we're not really thinking in those moments and we're often acting quite unconsciously if you can bring awareness to those moments then that creates that space to make a decision on how to act and that's where you can again decide to eat a certain food or not so when you have an urge or an impulse to eat something, I think it's really useful to just stop and pause for a few moments. When it comes to cravings, these urges don't last forever and they do go away on their own. I'll quickly preface this by saying, of course, you can eat the types of foods that you like, you know, you don't have to cut anything out at all. But if you feel like you're experiencing a lot of cravings and you would like to reduce the frequency and the intensity of those cravings, then something that you can do is learn to kind of ride those cravings out. Um, And the average length of time is around 20 to 30 minutes. That's how long it will take for a craving to pass without even doing anything. And I think a lot of people find comfort when they realize that, oh, actually, I don't have to act on this urge and it will go away over time. So I think taking a second to pause and then just really focus on your breathing, for example, it sounds like a little bit up in the air and a lot of people are like, hmm, what's this got to do with anything? Um, But (laughs) there's a lot of um, reasons behind why this is really helpful. And I quite like box breathing, which is just um, inhaling for four seconds, like through your nose, pausing, exhaling through your mouth for four seconds. Again, that just allows someone to kind of reset and reconnect with their body themselves and creating that space to then think, okay, what do I actually need? Do I need to act on this craving or how am I feeling right now? And I think urge surfing is a technique that we can use that's really helpful. So imagining your cravings as waves. So they rise and then they fall and then they crash and they will dissipate after a certain length of time. And if you can learn to ride those urges, ride those waves, um, then that's how you can build that skill of distress tolerance. And again, you don't have to respond. Um, so I think taking people through these kinds of techniques alongside, yeah, like keeping fruit out and hiding the rest of the snacks or whatever, like doing all of these things is more helpful for setting someone up. Um, also, I think just highlighting 
someone's own barriers so it helps them to reflect on when do I experience these cravings like a lot of people restrict too much during the day and they're like I, I'm perfect during the day like I can totally do this and then when it gets to the evening that's when I overeat and I can't help myself I'm like well maybe we need to look at what you're doing during the day you know if you're not eating enough then that's likely to feed into the urge to overeat at night so yeah, there's like a number of things that you can work on there. So I think it starts by identifying someone's specific barriers. You know, I get a package in the afternoon. Okay, what can we do then? If I get hungry at 3 p.m. and I, I fancy like a bite of chocolate, then I will take five seconds, do my breathing exercises and decide on what to eat. And I will give myself the option of the chocolate or whatever, or this other snack that I have prepared. You know, just making plans for someone's specific obstacles is really helpful in addition to those environmental situational modifications. I think that like the box breathing has come up a few times with guests now. And I think when people hear journaling, meditation, they're mm. kind of like, this is a bit wishy-washy. This is a little bit not me. But I think generally those people haven't necessarily tried it or haven't tried it for long enough. Mm. And they kind of just I think the other thing with that as well is actually um, you have to sell it a little bit to make it yeah. clear what the benefits are and why that approach is recommended for this specific person. And when they believe that, oh, okay, I can see actually how this may be effective for me, that's when they're more likely to do it. So I think we... Um, a lot of these things, as you say, uh, often met with a kind of barrier. Um, but I think it's our job to actually make it clear what the benefits are. And that's where the, they usually we find more success with those approaches. It's not like, oh, um, it didn't work for me. So I, you didn't actually understand why it's important. And that's the role of the coach to really sell that and make it clear why, you know, a, a given approach is kind of suggested. Yeah, I think, I think that's a massive, massive thing uh, that it has to be the role of the coach to try and not kind of try and sell, but kind of say, these are the benefits, these are the cons. And then it's up to the person if they latch onto it. And if you give them a few ideas and give them a few options, more often than not, they're going to pick one of them that potentially will work for them. And I think that's important rather than saying, you're going keto, you're going blah, blah, blah. And I, I, I have to say keto. Whoever is listening to this knows I hate keto. Um, but in relation to uh, another thing that kind of, can get a little bit kind of demonized and can get a little bit fluffy is the idea of tracking calories. I think when people hear the idea of tracking calories, they kind of can freak out. Um, why is it such a gray area? What are the pros and cons of tracking your calories? And have you got any tips to start doing it? Yeah, so I think macro tracking is a big one. I know that a lot of people, when they've got a weight loss goal, they nowadays tend to expect that macro tracking is necessary and it certainly has benefits in the sense that it can be very educational it's a good way to learn about portion sizes you start to understand the nutritional content of the foods you're eating so that's great but it also has some downsides in the sense that it can actually become quite restrictive which is Funny, considering that we often equate macro tracking to flexible dieting, you know, oh, you can eat the foods that you like as long as you track them and you don't go over calories. <laughs> and unfortunately, the distinction between flexible control and rigid control is not that clear. And we may be um, accidentally like promoting rigid control through our endorsement of flexible dieting strategies so i think that's where we have to be careful with macro tracking and we also need to be aware that there are so many other ways that you could educate someone you know um and there are different alternatives to monitoring your food intake rather than just tracking and i feel that in my opinion, macro tracking gets used quite heavy handedly because it's convenient for a coach to analyze that data. And it's like, well, I've got these spreadsheets and all these things. And I, I, it's, it's easy for me to keep track of what you're eating if you track. <laughs> so I think we um, tend to use that as default before actually considering what's the most appropriate approach for a client and whether it's something that they need to do or whether they want to do it. So I think when it comes to making dietary changes, Sure, like explain the pros and cons of the, the given approaches, but listen to the client and see what they really need and what they think is going to be suitable for them. And in a lot of cases, I think that macro tracking can cause more problems than it solves. A lot of people um, 
one, it's quite hard to track accurately. It does require a great degree of attention. Um, and although it doesn't take that much time to put some things into my fitness pal, often people think about food quite a lot. And they can fall into the trap of like going to bed thinking about what can I have tomorrow that's going to fit my macros? Or they fall into the trap of hoarding their calories throughout the day in case they get hungry later. So I think we just have to be aware of these things and the risks involved before using these approaches. So I... I do use macro tracking with my clients. Like that's definitely an option that um, a lot of people opt for and it does work well for a number of people. But I'm also um, really, I do like to encourage people to consider other options as well. And that could even be in the case of um, tracking for a period of time and then doing a non-tracking week. Because um, what I found with in my experience is that people get over attached to their food diary and they track and they get great results. And they're like, mm, now I'm stuck here. I'm stuck here tracking my macros because I'm scared to let go in case I can no longer control my body composition. And I think that's when it can become quite problematic as well. Um, so non-tracking weeks to relearn and re-listen to those hunger and fullness signals, I think is important. Um, so yeah, like it's definitely something that's worth doing, but when we speak about the benefits and we're talking about the educational benefits, it doesn't take that long to learn, you know, the macronutrient composition of the foods and what portion sizes are suitable for you. So why do we get people tracking for years on end? You know, if it's not always necessary or conducive, the other thing with the fitness industry is that we, you know, we like to talk about all the importance of protein and all the rest of it, which obviously Sure, that, that is important, but most people could eat a sufficient amount of protein without tracking it. If you're focusing on the habits and, you know, you're getting a source of protein in with each meal and potentially a snack, you're going to hit your protein targets without tracking on my fitness pal. And when you're considering it from the perspective of muscle building or whatever, we're given a range in the literature anyway. You know, why are we obsessed with this like two grams per kilogram number when Anything between, say, 1.6 to 2.2 grams is sufficient. You don't have to eat the same amount every single day. And, and people can do that without tracking. So I think if you can get a result with the least amount of like effort involved, I think that's the winner because that's more efficient in the long run. You know, why would you put in more time and attention to achieve the same result when you could get it by doing other things? So I think just considering the risks involved that yeah totally um happy to use it and again not everyone has problems with it and it can be educational but i think just emphasizing that there are other alternatives because it's become almost an expectation at this stage um so i think yeah just weighing up all the pros and cons and considering other approaches if you're a coach having other approaches up your sleeve and then seeing what the best thing is for the client rather than using macro tracking as a default what are the biggest misconceptions you see from, say, a client's point of view when it comes to tracking? Because I think some of the ones that have come up are kind of, should I be counting my vegetables? Should I be weighing my vegetables? Do I have to weigh my food? Are kind of the main ones that have come up. Um, what are your thoughts on those and what other ones have come up for yourself as a, as a coach? I think the biggest one that comes up for me and one that um, is quite problematic is thinking that it's necessary to track your macros in order to manage your body composition. It's like, well, if I didn't track my macros, I don't know what I'm eating. But, but you do because you're choosing what to eat, you know, and you can use things like listening to your hunger and fullness signals. I think because that sounds a bit like, oh, like up in the air and people like specific numbers to, to look at. Um, but that's when it becomes problematic is that you can't actually regulate your own intake without using an app. That's then a crutch. That's not a, a strength or a tool that you're using. It's something that you're now relying on and you're stuck with. Um, so I think if someone experiences a sense of anxiety and the thought of not tracking, then that's probably an indication that it's a good time to take a step back and take some time away. Um, and I think a lot of people just from moving away from tracking is that what I find with clients is that they realize, oh, actually was taking up a fair bit of my mental resources. Because again, even though it only takes a few minutes to input that data, what about the, the length of time people spend considering what to eat? You know, and that increased food preoccupation 
can be quite problematic. And again, it's like a, a risk factor for developing more pathological behaviours. And I like to promote flexibility and adaptability, which I think it can only really be done when you're given your yourself that space to move away and it's like oh now I'm, I'm on my own so let me see what um how this works like how do I actually know what a portion size looks like well I, I've tracked for a while you know I, I don't have to eat anything too dissimilar to what I'm currently eating I probably do have a good sense of portion sizes at this stage you know and maybe if I'm more comfortable with listening to my hunger and getting that interoceptive awareness like really focusing on that then I probably do have the knowledge I need to eat an appropriate amount without, you know, blowing it or, or whatever. So I think that would be a huge misconception is that it's the only way to monitor. And a lot of people have the ideas, oh, what if I'm not tracking and I'm not aiming for anything? And what's the point? What's the goal? Um, that's a big one that I've come up against. So I do think it's important to consider what do you want to do for the rest of your life? Like, is that something that you want to do for the rest of your life? And again, if you enjoy it, it's not a problem, then totally fine, like continue on. But um, if you feel like you can't live your life without it, then I think consider, okay, maybe this is a sign that I should potentially um, move away from macro tracking. I think that's a, a, a very, very good idea there, what you said at the very end about if you are becoming over-reliant on it. And like, if, if it's working for you, amazing. And there are people that like are, like their their lives are fitness and they're bodybuilders and all that kind of stuff and it, and it works for them. Um, but I know from experience, bodybuilders may not have the most amazing relationship with themselves, one, and food, two. Mm-hmm. So they may not be the most, the best people to kind of mo- to benchmark yourself against. I think the other thing that kind of comes into it with kind of the calorie tracking is if you are using the likes of my fitness pal, what can happen is when people are entering in their calories and what they're looking for, they go for the quickest fix. They go for like the, the two pounds weight loss a week. And then they're like, I get, they give them 1200 calories and then they wonder why they can't adhere to it. The other one that kind of comes up an awful lot is linking your Garmin or your watch or whatever like that with your activity tracker to your my fitness pal and then that has a massive impact on they increase your food as your activity increases and it's important to, to kind of potentially get rid of that little tracker and or, or unlink the two of them together but i think that i think that's a i think that's a brilliant point of view to say at the very end if you feel you're getting too bogged down in it there are other metrics and if you're working with a coach and they are saying that they can't see what you're 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 doing and they can't monitor it ask them a question is there any other elements that we can do and if they haven't got any other elements potentially just voice your concerns and saying this may be a little bit much for me at this time because my headspace i've got different priorities at the minute and as you said it's okay to be at maintenance as well i think a lot of people are maintenance is sexy too um which i think is is a massive thing you've spoken about the body composition there um and I think that's that's a, a bigger thing and it's becoming bigger now because of the likes of the media and it has been for quite a while. Why do we care so much on why we look or how we look? Yeah, that's a, a huge one because I think obviously when we're considering dietary changes, dietary restraint and body image kind of go hand in hand because by now we've all figured out that oh, the things I eat, can I can change my body through like changing my diet. Um, and there are a number of reasons why we feel the need to look a certain way. Something that, again, I like to raise with my clients is there was a time in your life when you didn't care about how you looked. You know, this forms over time. And there are a number of influences that come into this. So cultural socialization, the messages that we get from the media, that's a huge one. And the degree to which someone internalizes those media ideals can really influence their relationship with food and their relationship with themselves. So we, women and men are kind of under some different kind of influences in that men typically um, internalize like the the muscular ideal, like wanting to get big and and muscular. Um, Whereas women used to be more of like the thin ideal, but the interesting thing is that that's kind of changing over time too. And we are seeing that, Um, muscular and lean ideal being internalized by women as well when you think about the influence of the fitness industry so it's not always a um, a case of being super thin now we want to be muscular and ripped (laughs) Um, and that has a different impact on our eating behaviors and that's why I raised the point of protein before because some of these 
criteria for looking at, say, like pathological eating behaviors is actually now we're, we're recognizing that an obsession with protein intake can be quite problematic. Um, we also are influenced by our interpersonal relationships. So the communication that we have between our, our family and our friends can influence our body image. You know, what kind of comments do people make about your appearance? How do you discuss um, like there's concept of fat talk like do you engage in a lot of fat talk with your friends like talking about appearances um, do you compare yourself to other people also just like our own physical characteristics and changes over time so puberty is a, a big one for becoming more aware of the changes that are going on in your body and potentially getting concerned about some of those changes um, and also personality traits come into it as well so those perfectionist obsessive kind of tendencies do increase the risk of someone developing pathological eating behaviors and, and the reason I'm obviously emphasizing the eating behaviors is that um, our body image can often influence the way that we eat and I think a common misconception that people have is that oh if I change my body composition then I will feel better about myself but body image actually has little to do with how we look it's more to do with our perceptions and our feelings around how we look so it's a multifaceted construct that has kind of four main domains so it's your perceptions about how you look, um, your thoughts about your body, the feelings attached to those thoughts, and also our behaviours as well. So a, a negative body image may manifest in someone constantly checking themselves out. Like every time they walk past the mirror, they have to, to flex, they have to lift their top up, they have to see what they're looking like to check up on themselves. Or another big one is pinching body fat. That's something that a lot of people engage in. And these behaviours can become quite problematic because they reinforce the idea that it's important to control how you look uh, and they can become quite compulsive and then that's kind of a negative cycle that's difficult to break so I think um, understanding that yeah sure it's fine to want to look a certain way and most people do and that's kind of natural given the culture the, the environment that we're living in um, but it can become quite invasive and it can you know take over someone's life if that's something that that preoccupation with food and their appearance is something that can then push out you know these other important things that people have going on so just remembering that actually changing my body composition is going to have little impact on my body image um, so if I want to make physique changes, but I also want to feel better about myself, then I should probably look to that side of things as well. And addressing a lot of those cognitions is going to be an important part of that because it's not the body that's the problem. It's the force that someone has about their body. So how important is it to you to look a certain way? And why is that the case? Um, and that can be quite difficult to address. But I, I think it's something important, like especially for, for coaches, for people who are looking to change their body composition because they think that they're going to increase their confidence and feel better about themselves. Um, we need to be aware of these kind of protective factors that we can put in place. So things like appreciating what your body can do for you. So we can want to make physique changes whilst appreciating that actually my body is quite strong. Like um, it allows me to perform well. Or even outside of that, like if you didn't have a body, like you wouldn't exist <laughs> so your body allows you to do all the things that you like to do in your in your life you know again it sounds a little bit up in the air but it's like your vessel for communicating with other people it's the way in which you experience the world and um, it's just really appreciating your body for what it can do for you is um, a huge one rather than simply how it looks um, and also self-compassion is huge so not being too critical on yourself um, and responding with kindness you know a lot of people have these negative thoughts like oh I'm so lazy like why can't I do this or I'm not good enough I think about addressing those kinds of things is important alongside the, the physique changes if you really want to feel better um, overall so that's probably some of the important things to consider there. The, I think the, the massive there were so many points in that and so many little nuggets in there about kind of like the perception of yourself is a massive thing comparing your journey compared to someone else's and I think a lot of people are very very good at doing that mm -hmm. a very kind of just scrolling they're like oh that girl is or else if someone's working with someone they're comparing their journey to other people's they don't know what their starting point was one you don't know how long they potentially were working with that person for i think it's really really important to measure your worth against your worth rather than someone else's worth and almost you spoke about kind of the dealing with the negative thoughts 
there's an amazing guy, Dr. Amen, over in America, and he talks about kind of anti-negative thoughts. So if you think ants like creepy crawlies, once they come into your house, they infest your brain. So the way to kind of counteract a negative thought is having having two or three positive thoughts to talk about yourself. To so say if you're looking in the mirror and we kind of default automatically to what we see in the mirror as negative or pinching our belly fat, as you said, why not have three positive affirmations to yourself? Like you're not going to, it's going to take more time than potentially the first time you did it. And it's about what you can do consistently. It's like any journey. It's like anything. You have to put the reps in as cheesy as it sounds and as fitnessy as that sounds. It is about putting those repetitions in. Um, you've also spoken a kind of like so I we could talk all day. There's so many so many more posts and stuff like that that you've you've created. But one other thing was kind of like tips for failures because I think when people are either on plan or off plan, mm. there is there is a very very gray area there for a lot of people. They don't necessarily know how to cope with the off plan when say Monday to Thursday they're amazing, and then Friday Saturday Sunday it goes out the window and then on Monday they feel like diet starts Monday and they don't feel too amazing about themselves. Have you kind of, kind of got any tips uh, for kind of planning for failures along any journey or any fitness journey? Yeah. Um, I think this really comes down to, again, how someone responds to that through things like the way that they talk to themselves, because any, challenge any sort of journey there's going to be hurdles and it's likely that it's not going to be a smooth journey I think that's something that I kind of quite like to make clear you know every step of the way is that we're not looking for perfection we're just looking for improvements over time and progress over time it's not like you have to nail every single thing every single day in order to get results Um, And there's a huge difference between a lapse and a relapse. So a momentary slip up doesn't have to lead to throwing in the towel and giving up on everything. And I think it's uh, a lot of people suffer from that kind of slippery slope mentality where it's like, oh, well, I I went over my calories by 200. I've messed it all up. May as well just throw in the towel and like you say, start again on Monday. Um, And an analogy that I like to use, which I think can be quite helpful, is if you got a flat tire, you wouldn't then smash up the rest of your car because, oh, the whole whole car's ruined now. What's the point? You know, you think, okay, let's just address this, fix it and move on. Um, But we don't apply that same thought process to ourselves. And it usually comes down to eating something that wasn't planned, for example, or missing a workout, whatever it may be. You think, oh, I've ruined it all. What's the point? You know, may as well. And that kind of what the hell effect actually leads to more problems than if you had nipped it in the bud and then stopped there. But I think the reason that we find it so easy to go overboard in those moments is because of that kind of cognitive distortion of how we um, over catastrophize the importance of the situations. I think if you can be a little bit easier on yourself and not being critical in the face of a slip up, but understanding that, oh, okay, well, everyone makes, um, like, again, this isn't supposed to be smooth every step of the way. Um, and understanding that you're only human and this is normal, that can prevent those kind of extreme reactions in a sense because like oh, okay well never mind let me um address this I, I think that allows you again to understand why these slip-ups may be occurring like if it's a regular thing like oh okay maybe the plan that I'm following isn't the ideal plan for me or maybe again there's something that I need to change here and I think you can only really look to get to the root of what's occurring and understand yourself and your behaviors with that attitude of openness and acceptance and non-judgmental curiosity that's a huge one so not being judgmental of yourself like oh i've made a mistake i'm a terrible person if you internalize that mistake that's going to be very difficult to then move on and adapt so understanding again everyone's going to make mistakes from time to time it doesn't have to be um the the end of the world you don't have to start again on monday just reassess um what's happened and be like okay well why did i feel like going overboard um and then that's when you can really address those thought patterns oh well i've ruined it all anyway well maybe a little bit of education there would be helpful that oh actually you know when you think about say energy balance we understand that the more you do like the further away that you're you're going to be moving so you're actually helping yourself by nipping it in the butt. You know, maybe someone thinks that 
200 calories is going to have huge difference on their results so they've ruined it and then they go overboard well actually if I can understand that that's you know maybe that wasn't the plan today but it doesn't really matter in the long run then I think that can really help so again it really comes down to the way that you your expectations for the process expectations of success what success means to you and um, so I think having a, another marker of success is really helpful as well because a lot of those um, throwing in the towel relapse kind of moments may occur when you don't feel like you're getting the weight loss results that you expect like the number on the scale and that may be because you have unrealistic expectations but again that's not your fault it's likely to be with the media thinking that oh you know this extreme challenge can get you massive results in such a short amount of time um, so making sure that your expectations are realistic because oftentimes like I have clients that are doing great you know, and they're like, oh, well, I thought I would have lost more weight by now. Like, I, I must be doing something wrong. And it's like, no, 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 you're making amazing uh, progress. So I think um, highlighting every win that you've got going on. And I think that comes down to, again, that tying it into that broader conceptualization of health. Like, oh, actually, okay, maybe my weight didn't go down this week but my clothes are feeling better. I actually have more energy when I wake up. I'm not um, grumpy and miserable each day because I'm tired, you know. Um, I've had more attention to put into, more energy to put into my work and that this thing's happened. You know, there's so many signs of progress that we can make. Um, so I think that helps as well to prevent someone feeling like they're failing. And then if they do slip up, having that um, attitude of non-judgmental curiosity so we can kind of like plan for those failures in advance. Um, and then recognizing that you're only human and it's not going to be smooth every step of the way, but as long as you don't give up, you can't fail. I think that the human element has definitely come up a few times in what we've been speaking about. It is kind of being, having that empathy and compassion towards yourself and understanding that it isn't going to be a straight line. It's about understanding that there will be little blips. There will be things that get in the way. You could have a deadline at work. You could have one of the kids that could be sick or whatever it may be. You could be ill. Uh, and it's important to say what you're doing majority of the time like you're not going to lose weight in one day you're not going to put on weight in one day it's about what you do over time like if you go over 200 calories in one day you're like there are more important things going on than kind of going over by 200 calories it's about what you do for like the rest of the month or the, the six months towards your goal and it's interesting to hear about kind of like if someone has kind of potentially lost say i don't know three or four kilos they're like why haven't I lost more? They're always looking for that little bit more. It took you time to put the weight on. It's going to take you time to take the weight off. If if I could go like this with a click of the finger, I would be a billionaire by now if I could if I could get my clients that way. But it's important that if you can, it's about you finding the speed that you can go at yourself because you've potentially tried to go for the quick fixes before. You've lost the weight, but within kind of three, four months or five months or whatever, maybe the weight has crept back up. You haven't been taught. You haven't had that empathetic side towards yourself. You haven't had that compassion side to yourself. The last thing that I'm going to talk about for uh, get you to answer is regarding kind of removing guilt and food shame. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people do have that. Their language towards food, in particular, the C word, which is carbs uh, and chocolate and stuff like that. How have you got any tips for removing that kind of the language barrier around food? Yeah, I think it's really important um, to not look at foods in terms of like good or bad or black and white, you know, and understanding that there are benefits to food, that it goes beyond just the nutrient composition of that food. So chocolate, for example, isn't bad. And considering these foods in the context of your diet as a whole is really important as well. So again, not looking at foods, looking at your diet over a period of time. And when thinking about these benefits, like, yeah, maybe chocolate isn't the most nutrient dense food, um, but it also has benefits in that it simply tastes good. You know, it's, that, that is a benefit. It is okay to want to eat these foods and to enjoy food. Um, food doesn't have to be like an enemy or, or simply a means of achieving a goal. So I think that would probably be the biggest thing is really 
understanding where these thought processes come from so you mentioned carbs that's a common one because we see that in the media like oh you need to go keto oh low carb and when you're walking down the um supermarket like just seeing low carb products puts that thought in your head oh do i need low carb do i need to avoid carbs you know so understanding where those thoughts have come from and then questioning them why do i believe that xyz is bad for me um, and I think that can that can really help to be like, oh, actually, maybe this is a thought that's just kind of almost been planted in my head. I haven't really considered it before. What could be an alternative explanation? Oh, maybe they're just trying to sell me stuff so that I buy it and spend money. Well, that's an alternative explanation. Um, and I think once someone sees results from eating a variety of foods, that can be quite reassuring. So having the confidence to try something new, I think is quite a big thing. Again, if you've avoided carbs for a long period of time, that can be quite challenging. If you're like, oh no, like if the coach is like, oh, you can eat carbs, it's fine. It's like, oh, I don't want to eat carbs. Like that will make me fat. Like I think um, it's important not to expect that your advice can be taken at face value if someone's got an ingrained belief. And again, about really questioning those or just creating the conditions and inviting the client to question these things for themselves is quite helpful. Um, so yeah, the really big one would be not to look at foods in terms of good or bad and not to associate your self-worth with your diet either. So you, you're not a bad person for eating a bad food. One, because bad foods don't exist, but also because you are not your diet either, you know? Um, so I think that's an important distinction to make and really focusing about your, the context of your diet as a whole, because all these foods offer different properties. So it's like, what do I need and what do I want? And then thinking, figuring that out over time, I think can help to um, stop dichotomizing foods. Yeah, I think what I try to say or work with my clients is like, foods do not have a moral compass. They can't be good or bad, and but or good or bad. And then I think once that kind of penny drops, kind of like, yeah, I've been doing this wrong for a long time. And I think certain clubs or slimming clubs have a lot to have been responsible for a lot of that kind of stuff um but that's a different episode completely uh and there's one coming out soon about it but i think shannon there's so much in there and the, the importance of being human having empathy compassion actually taking up sip step back is there something else going on in your life is there stress going on is there something changing in your life and being actually a bit more self-reflective which i think mm-hmm. people do forget we all live busy lives but that which is which is okay too but sometimes you are going to have to kind of take a sit back because rather than kind of just aimlessly scrolling rather than trying to put your energy on what someone else is doing why don't try to put the energy on what you want to do and try to be a little bit more reflective where can people find out about yourself shannon where can people work with you yeah, so I think probably the best place would be um, over on Instagram is probably where I'm the most active. Um, that's just at ShannonBeer underscore. Or I've also been um, writing some more articles recently. So I did one on what um, health is, what it means to be healthy. Um, so my website is linked to my bio, but it, you could also just um, visit shannonlbeer.com um, and read the articles on there. And yeah, you'll find all the information if you're looking for anything or feel free to reach out and I'll always be happy to respond to any questions as well. Shannon, I cannot thank you enough. I think this is one of those episodes that I'll be kind of going back to for little nuggets and stuff like that to work with uh, with coaches and stuff like that. I cannot thank you enough for your time. Um, guys, if you've enjoyed the episode at all, please do tag Shannon and I up on your story and please leave a review up on iTunes. Thank you so much for coming on, Shannon. Yeah, thank you for having me.